It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. We have one of the healthiest population of sturgeon in northern Ontario on Ottawa-Wiscott River. And we need to protect that. And that's where the Ford government wants to build a road. They want to destroy that river. They want to fast track the environmental process, assessment process. They don't want this kind of guy involved. We will continue to uh, stand up to the government doesn't matter which government that wants to uh, cross our land without our free, fire, and farm consent. Yeah! Yeah! There will be no ring of fire. No ring of fire. No ring of fire! 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 That was Niskandaga Chief Chris Munias speaking to a crowd outside Queen's Park in late September. Leadership from five First Nations, which together formed a coalition called the Land Defense Alliance, traveled from northern Ontario to Toronto to request a meeting with Premier Doug Ford. They didn't get one. They don't want to talk to us. We invited him yesterday to talk, to, to sit down and talk to us. But he didn't come. That's a shame. Then he lied. He lied yesterday before I came down here that he said he's very uh, accessible. He returns calls. He's a liar. He's never even done that. He never even came. We can't even access him. Chiefs wanted Ford to sign a declaration of respect, promising that the province will respect the right of First Nations to say no to unwanted mining and other industry on their territories. Certainly, you would hope that a government would take seriously the right to say no to having one's territory torn up for resource extraction. But given, you know, that the, what do you call it, the, uh, the entire history of Canada, you will probably not be surprised to learn that, especially when it comes to Indigenous peoples, Canadian governments are not necessarily so big on consent. If anything, it is easier than ever for prospective prospectors to 
stake mining claims in this province. There are several mining battles going on in Ontario right now. For instance, there's the Cat Lake First Nation that's trying to oppose a gold mining company from draining a lake on their land to hunt for gold in the waterbed. The PC government recently issued the mining firm a license to build a winter road to the site, nonetheless. But nothing looms larger than the potential development of the so-called Ring of Fire, a far-flung nickel and chromite deposit that the premier has made a symbol of Ontario's economic dreams, as though he looked across Mordor and mistook the Eye of Sauron for a beacon rather than a scourge. Gotta get me some of that. The Ring of Fire is many things to many people. For Doug Ford, it's an applause line in a stump speech. For EV champions, it's the underbelly of an emissionsless future. For the Mattawa First Nations, it's the muskeg and earth and water on which they live. For Ontario's Ministry of Mines, it's the Thunder Bay and Porcupine Mining Divisions. And for the Ministry's Mining Lands Administration System, it's a bunch of rectangles to be clicked on on our online map, as the video tutorial helpfully explains. Selection. In this video, we will be using the map selection. Go ahead and click. You will be redirected to the map selection page. And once the page is displayed, you will have to make your cell selection. It used to be the case that to stake a mining claim in Ontario, you'd have to bang physical stakes into the ground. And by used to be the case, I mean up until just like five to ten years ago. But now pretty much anyone with an internet connection and a little bit of patience can do it from anywhere. And by pretty much anyone, we mean us. On this episode, we're going to look at the strange phenomenon of colonialism via web portal while I add a new line under the experience section of my resume, Prospector, 2023 to present. I'm Allison Smith, publisher of Queen's Park Today, and it's Doug Ford's birthday. Happy 59th to our muse. I'm Jonathan Goldsby, a news editor at Candleland, and it's also my birthday. No, no, it's not. But I am reminded that for the first time in nearly a decade and a half, the city of Toronto has a mayor whose birthday is not the 28th of May. And this is Wag the Doug, a monthly podcast about Doug Ford. Okay, I think we are... Ready to become prospectors. First step. Log into the Mining Lands Administration System. In the Ministry, Ontario Ministry of Mines website. The Minister of Mines is George Peary. We have to enter our name. So, so we're letting... Jonathan is going to be the, the prospector. Yeah, honorific. Unknown Mr., Mrs., or Ms. I am 18 years of age or older, I disagree or agree, and directly underneath it says it is an offense under the Mining Act to make a false statement. That's the only thing they specify not to lie about, from Uh, what I can tell. Country. Oh, no, they do not default to Canada or anything else. It's an alphabetical list beginning with Afghanistan. Which is interesting because lots of Canadian mining firms mine in. They would need that drop-down menu for all the countries they want to mine in. Oh, yeah, yeah. But less so vice versa. Is this the first time you've ever registered as a prospector, Jonathan? Uh, per my recollection, 
I mean, I've done lots of things on a prospective basis, <laughs> uh, but uh, but um, officially declaring my intention to potentially look for minerals <laughs> to the extent that I mean going shopping for a box of salt doesn't count as such. I guess this is. Update your map. Your, so then you can update your map, M-A-A-P, which is the Mining Act Awareness Program. And I think this is, ah, oh, here we Welcome, with exclamation point. <laughs> the Ministry of Northern Development and Mines, MNDM, I'm not even sure it's still called that, Mining Act Awareness Program, MAP, is an online educational program intended to provide a general introduction to mining claim registration and performing work on mining lands in accordance with the Mining Act. MAP will also provide an overview of recent changes to the legislation and regulations that have occurred through Mine Act modernization initiatives. By the end of this 60-minute program, you should be familiar with the purpose of the Mining Act and how the Act and its regulations, directives, and policies affect the performance of early exploration activities in Ontario. Oh, oh, the second bullet point here is the consideration that needs to be given to Aboriginal, capital A Aboriginal, and treaty rights. Discuss ways to minimize the impact of their project on the exercise of Aboriginal Mineral ex- exploration activities are strongly encouraged to engage early and often with local Aboriginal communities. Yeah, and to start building relationships. Relationships built early can help facilitate consultation processes later on. Building relationships with Aboriginal communities can also lead to mutual understandings and commitments which can address concerns early without need of specific terms or conditions on an exploration permit or other requirements being imposed later by the ministry. So, yeah, reach out, form a relation. I mean, it's not, I guess it's not bad advice if you're doing this, but yeah, no, the whole, I mean, this whole thing is. Well, have you seen Killers of the Flower Moon? Yes. That's like literally the advice that the Robert De Niro character gives to Leo at the beginning. (laughs) Oh, Oh, yeah. Land status, ah, oh, it's important, can be determined by the color of cells in the map. Cells that are open for registration will be green. Cells that are open for registration with certain restrictions will be amber. Cells that are not open for registration will be red. I find them purple, but... Like how quickly they went from build relationships to Aboriginal people to payment screen. Yes. <laughs> Once a mining claim has been registered, the claim holder is required to apply a certain amount of assessment work credit to a claim each year in order to keep the claim in good standing. This, these are like the instructions for a really obnoxious board game. Yeah. Some uses of crown land include camping, fishing, hunting, and all-terrain slash off-road vehicle uses. For three cubic meters in volume within a 200-meter radius. And mechanized drilling with a drill is less than 150 kilograms, which the total weight of which is not to include rods and casing. It's weird that it's based on the weight of the drill. Yeah. Not what you do with the drill. <laughs> Square meters, pitting and trenching bedrock more than three cubic meters in volume, mechanized drilling where the drill is more than 150 kilograms. I guess this is a photo of a drill that's more than 150 kilograms. Ooh, quiz. Exploration plans and exploration permits require consultation between the Crown and Aboriginal communities. The Director of Exploration can also determine whether or not to involve proponents in certain consultation activities. True. Record completion of map, complete map, complete map, complete map, map. Application for prospector's license accepted and license issued and activated. Click the link below to view or print the prospector's license in PDF. Print it, frame it. Oh, wow. That's not very exciting at all. (laughs) It's the least exciting. Per me, the prospector. Yeah, it's in English and French. It's English and French. It's the size of like a wallet card. It's just the... It's less elaborate than the vaccination certificate, we'll say that. 
There's a play called The Lehman Trilogy, originally written in Italian by Stefano Massini and adapted into English by Ben Power. It traces the history of the Lehman Brothers, both the individuals and their eponymous company, from their early days servicing slave plantations through the firm's ultimate collapse in 2008 when it nearly took down the whole global economy with it. Uh, there's a production on now, Canadian Stage in Toronto. The show looks at how the Lehman's gradual enmeshment in various industries, you know, like Westward Railway expansion, tobacco, weapons, probably also some less destructive things, mirrored the evolution of the systems undergirding the U.S. overall. In one scene, there's a description of Wall Street in 1881 at the dawn of an age of a more abstract kind of capitalism than had come before. The, the line is, the exceptional thing, it seemed to Meyer, is that there on Wall Street, where they seem to sell everything, iron, fabric, coal, every type of thing you can imagine, in reality, there's no trace of it. On the most literal level, that's also more or less the history of mining in Canada, and particularly of mining in Toronto. Basically, it's the industry's global financial capital and also a place where there are no mines to be seen. We'll talk about that in a bit. Uh, but on a less literal level, it's also kind of like the recent history of what it means to be a prospector in Ontario, of officially obtaining the rights to explore a parcel of land for minerals without ever having to leave your desk. Well, I mean, someone's supposed to leave their desk eventually to actually check for minerals, but the process of getting the right to do so, of staking a claim, has since 2018 become even more divorced from the land whose essence is being bought and sold. Uh, so Allison and I decided to find out what is that like to use a website to stake a claim on land. All right, we're here about to flex Jonathan's prospecting license on the Mining Lands Administration System website. And help our company, uh, Candleland Inc., live up to its name. I am wearing a, well, it's not a prospecting hat so, <laughs> so much, but it has a brim and fits awkwardly on top of these headphones. It looks great. So we're here on the, the MLAS, Mining Lands Administration System. Go on the left side of the screen, hit, go to Claim Acquisition, register a mining claim. Disclaimer. Registered mining claims should not be used for any other purpose than that of the mineral industry. Well, this is very much an endeavor related to the min mineral industry. Uh, a claim registered under the Mining Act applies with respect to all the land included in the relevant cells identified in financial credit, blah, 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 blah. It is the users and claim holders' responsibility to be aware of what lands are available or not available within a cell. Any person choosing to register a mining claim should verify the accuracy of the information provided. If a mining claim is registered in respect of a land for which there is a surface rights owner, i.e. someone who has property on it, uh, within 60 days after the mining claim is registered, give confirmation of registration or the claim basically is voided. Any subsequent activities, permits or approvals or decisions relating to exploration work on mining claims will require notification with affected Aboriginal communities. So it's just one of the list of terms and conditions down here, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, uh, seventh line down. Yes, I agree to there being Indigenous people who may potentially require notification slash consultation. Ready? Agree? Clickety-click. Yeah. Now, it gives a screen with selected cell IDs. If I knew the number, I could just type it in, but I can click on the little map icon here to bring up the, the map selection screen. So the map is the Ontario with a grid laid over it. As you zoom in, results in lots and lots of little more grids, smaller and smaller grid squares, and then shaded different colors. Purple generally means something's off limits. If it's green, it generally means on it's, it's open. But then there's a whole hundred other things in between. Most of southern Ontario is off limits. But if you could zip up to northern Ontario. It's freedom country. Find an address. And the address we will choose 
is 610 Lakeview Drive, Kenora, Ontario, which is one of the constituency offices for Greg Rickford, who is the Minister of Indigenous Affairs and Northern Development. He's going to love this. This is Northern Development at its finest. Now, 610 Lakeview Drive, that that itself is in a parcel that is basically off limits. It's shaded purple for, I'm not entirely sure we can find out why. Specific. Probably a municipality. But next to it uh, appears to be a, play, a little street called Colonization Road. Appropriately enough, it seems to be on this little waterfront here. And that appears, that is shaded differently with little little purple lines over yellow, which according to the legend means surface rights. Means someone has the surface rights there, not necessarily the mining rights. Available only? Yeah, it's available, I believe. Confirm. So this is cell 52E15A338. And now I will own the rights to potentially explore a tiny piece of it for valuable minerals. <laughs> if you're not a robot. Now, CAPTCHA? <laughs> okay. It seems to agree that cell 52E15A338 is available. It's asking me to specify the owner. And uh, yeah, so I'm just going to put... Jonathan Goldsby. No, I'm going to put Canada Land Inc. Because I believe I'm allowed to do... Yeah, oh, here we are. I've already put us in the database. Perfect. Oh, mining claim acquired fee. Fee unit per cell, $50. So it's basically like a TIF ticket, yes. Or alternatively, but half the cost of getting a driver's license. Huh. No HST. But it's one of the cheaper things you can buy from the province of Ontario, as far as I know. Confirm. Shopping cart. Does it Shop- call it a company? Yeah. Shopping cart. View shopping cart. It's fully Select called a shopping type. cart. <laughs> External user, Jonathan Goldsby. Data data entry date, yes. Register mining claim submitter, Jonathan Goldsby. Register mining shopping cart total. Next. Accepted payment methods include Visa, Visa Debit, MasterCard, and Debit MasterCard. I imagine American Express was just slightly too imperial uh, for them to allow. Make payment. Credit card number. I may as well get the aeroplan points. <laughs> Yeah, I tend to buy mining claims just for the points, you know. It would be great if you could collect optimum points. Actually, that would be that would be even better. I'm surprised they're pretty tight tight with shoppers in this government. That's oh, probably I know. to come. <laughs> okay, and perhaps not entirely unlike my dog uh, meeting a lamppost, I will s- submit payment and stake this claim. Before proceeding, please print a copy of this page and keep it for your records. Okay, that's probably a good idea. Now, complete payment process. Okay, that seems to have worked. Confirm. I think that's it. Mining claim acquired. Is that it? Claims have been registered successfully. You have 60 days to notify any surface rights owners on which the PRO identifies as being required for any or all of your claims. Uh, If you fail to notify any required surface rights owners, your claims will automatically cancel on the 61st day. So I think uh, I got a claim now. This is fun, but I want to have a certificate saying you can <laughs> dig here. Claim information. Aha. Generate claim abstract PDF. There we go. There we are. There's our, our uh, I wouldn't say it's a, our baby so much as our, wow, I don't have anything funny. To, I didn't have anything especially funny to say because it's just so weird. Recorded holder of this claim, Canada Land, Inc. Now print. One mining claim here. <laughs> Thank you. Wow. We did it. The day Jono became a prospector. 
So so how close is it to Greg Rickford's constituency office? Well, depending on whether you're counting from the edge of the cell or to the part of the cell where the mining rights were available for us to claim, uh, 50 to 225 meters. It's just a stone's throw. So Doug Ford, again, who's celebrating his 59th birthday the day we're recording this, isn't this podcast's only muse. We also sought inspiration from a, a, a friend, acquaintance, colleague of ours, Nick Zarzitsky. Yep. He is a writer, journalist, humorist, co-author of the Candleland Guide to Canada, uh, which is a, a real or was a real book. And the CEO of the Toronto Board of Mining. Mm-hmm. My name is Nick Zarzitsky. I'm the founder and CEO of the Toronto Board of Mining. We created our company because we believe in Ontario's mineral wealth, and we will stop at nothing to exploit it. Nick, you know, you have a past in journalism. What made you want to take the leap into mining and prospecting? Yeah, I mean, it's very simple. I discovered one day that Toronto is the best place in the world to start a mining company. So I think uh, the better question is, why are we all starting mining companies being Toronto residents and having access to just this impeccable mining infrastructure at our fingertips? So once you realize this, what steps did you take to take advantage of this? of how conducive the city is to that industry. The Toronto Board of Mining started when I started dicking around with uh, the system that I think you've been playing around in, the the Mining Lands Administration system. This came out of a kind of broader fascination I have with the Ontario government's move towards the online delivery of public services. So would you say as a prospector, you like these new GIS-based systems better than uh, the olden days of yore back in, in, I think, 2016 when you had to pound stakes in the ground still? Yeah. I mean, instead of uh, hiring someone to go up there and, as you say, physically stake land, I can do this from the comfort of my own home when I'm drinking my coffee in the morning. What did you find? What have you, what have you staked? I should say that many of our claims are either currently suspended or under review by uh, the Ontario government. (laughs) One of the first claims that we made was under the Library of Parliament in Ottawa. That site was a really promising target for us. The building is made out of this beautiful local Nepean sandstone um, with additional detailing made of khaki Wallace sandstone, red sandstone, and light gray limestone. We thought that would be a really promising target, but within a few months of registering a mining claim under the Library of Parliament in Ottawa, we were contacted by the Ministry of Mining. They let us know that that land had been withdrawn from prospecting in 1990 and that that they were withdrawing our claim there. Another mining claim we made was on uh, Tommy Thompson Park here in Toronto. It's a spit of land located just beyond uh, the Toronto Islands. Leslie Street Spit. Also known as the Leslie Spit, that's right. Um, We really like that uh, location for a few reasons, Uh, easy access to the grid, uh, lots of paved, unassumed roads, and it would also have been the only mining claim in North America accessible by bike share. So we (laughs) we really, we thought Tommy Thompson Park was going to be kind of our big one. Unfortunately, that one was also uh, withdrawn by the Ministry of Mining. Would you say, as Doug Ford has that Ontario is open for business 
when it comes to the the mining and prospecting sector? It's if there were a word that signified opening more than open, I would use that word. It is wide open. It's so it's so wide open that the business is almost falling out. It's an incredible place to be a mining company. There's no single place in the world I think that is better to I guess pursue unfettered 21st century mining than than Ontario. I don't know about other businesses. I'm my expertise is uh, limited to the mining industry, but absolutely 100 percent. I love that guy. Jono, now that you're a prospector, I do think it's important for you to know the lay of the land when it comes to the mining industry in Canada and abroad. Do you mean the lay under the land? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the main thing to know is that the global order is obsessed with critical minerals right now. Ever since governments started getting behind electric vehicles in a big way a few years ago, and again, like only a very few years ago, like three years ago, mm-hmm. <laughs> there has been a lot of concern in the West about ensuring access to the minerals that go into making batteries for EVs and other electronics. There's a long list of these critical minerals, but the main ones are like nickel, cobalt, lithium, chromite, and copper. With everyone forecasting that electric vehicles are going to take off in the next decade, the demand for these minerals is expected to go through the roof, and Western governments want to make sure that China doesn't own all of them. On that front, the West and the United States are really playing catch-up because right now China does own all of them. (laughs) Not all of them, but that country has spent many years and lots of money setting up critical mineral mines all over Africa and buying up existing mines in countries like Australia, Chile, and Canada even. It also refines more critical minerals than any other country and dominates the EV battery supply chain. So much of so many things and certainly so much of geopolitics is defined by like whoever basically the United States in particular believes is its biggest competitor or biggest threat and then trying to build, trying to find a way to work around that. And that kind of ends up shaping a big part of our world for decades at a time sometimes. Totally. And mining in in a huge way. Like a lot of um, Canadian mines like the nickel that we know uh, Sudbury for Basically, the U.S. determined that nickel was good at protecting, like, naval ships from being sunk, and there was became a massive demand for it in World War II, and Sudbury had a lot of it. So, like, that entire industry is based around war. So, once again, Ontario fits into this geopolitics of the moment because our portion of the Earth's crust contains and still contains untapped deposits of nickel, cobalt, lithium, copper. Doug Ford says he wants to build an end-to-end EV supply chain in the province using those minerals from the ground to build batteries and cars all within Ontario. It's something that is technically possible and something that I think Ontario and, and Canada and probably the United States would think was cool if we could do it. But like many things we talk about on the show tends to run up against the constraints of capitalism. Or the constraints of reality anyway. And for, it runs up against First Nations rights, although good as though that's only been occasionally successful at uh, rebuffing the whims and appetites of uh, largely unfettered capitalism. Yeah, definitely. 
So since 2007, the the beacon of light on Ontario's economic horizon has been a mineral deposit named after a Johnny Cash song, the Ring of Fire. The region is more than 500 kilometers north of North Bay and located on the traditional lands of nine First Nations known collectively as the Mattawa. The group includes the Webequi and Martin Falls First Nations, both of which support development and mining and have basically been pro-Ring of Fire since it was discovered, along with vocal opponents such as the Niskandaga, who we listened to off the top at the Queen's Park protest. When he was running for premier in 2018, Doug Ford famously said he would jump on a bulldozer himself to get a road built to the Ring of Fire. But maybe less famously, he has not. There is no road, no specific money really set aside for the road, which is expected to cost at least a billion dollars, and no agreement between the Mattawa First Nations that makes it seem likely that there will be anytime soon. Of the Mattawa First Nations, Niskandaga has been the most vocal in its opposition. Chief Chris Munius, who was at the protest we talked about off the top, and his predecessor, Wayne Munius, have interrupted question periods several times over the past year. That's true fact. You come, you come to our traditional territory, get our free consent. You're not going to bulldoze our area. You're not going to come into our community. You're not going to ravage our river system. You're not going to take away our sturgeon. You're not going to take away our moose. You're not you need our river. You need our consent in order to cross your our river system. Cross our river. Away. They've said their people will physically confront any construction equipment that crosses the Attawapiskat River and accuse the PCs of using a divide-and-conquer strategy to keep the environmental assessment process for the Ring of Fire moving along. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. As someone who only very recently started paying extremely close attention to uh, mineral rights as a licensed prospector, I had been under the impression that Ring of Fire was a, a term that had been around for quite some time to refer to this area of Ontario. I hadn't really realized it was termed in 2007, buried in a press release from Norant Resources. I think the very first reference to it was this press release where uh, Norant is pleased to announce the progress of diamond drilling program on its company's Double Eagle project located in James Bay Lowlands, northeastern Ontario. And then way, 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 way down, uh, in light of this exciting nickel, copper, and PGE discovery with high economic potential, Norant continues with an aggressive exploration, staking campaign, and have dubbed the area the Ring of Fire. Which, yeah, as you know, Richard Nemes, or Nemes, who was the president and CEO at the time, was apparently a, an ardent Johnny Cash fan. Ardent, what I believe was the word from Canadian Jeweler magazine, but they find various adjectives to describe his fondness for Johnny Cash. And in his obituary, his family wrote that it was his fondest wish that one day this area in northern Ontario would be developed. So 
he was quite obviously quite proud of this. But how important is the Ring of Fire specifically to all of these mineral plans? It's a great question. Experts are divided, honestly. Many people say there's plenty of nickel and cobalt and copper elsewhere in Ontario and in other parts of Canada that's a lot easier to get at, that that may have a road nearby it already. If mining companies extracted that, that that would be more than enough Mm -hmm. to supply all the batteries that the human race is Mm -hmm. expected to desire in the next couple decades. I think what the Ring of Fire has had since we first started hearing about it, and something you alluded to from that press release, is a lot of hype. And one thing I'm learning about mining is that hype is a huge part of the industry. Since those deposits were discovered and the name the Ring of Fire Mm -hmm. was designated, it's been called the next oil sands of Canada. Um, as, as a good thing? Yeah, that, w- that was meant in a good way. Oh. Um, <laughs> Doug Ford's mining minister, George Peary, he recently said that it could be worth up to a trillion dollars, even though the current CEO of the biggest company up there basically said no, uh, maybe like 90 billion, something like that. The Kathleen Wynne government was also really bought into this. She appointed Bob Ray as an interlocutor between the First Nations in the area. And one time she even promised to build over $2 billion worth of infrastructure to get it done. Um, so Bob Ray's just sort of just around and he gets appointed to the, like, we need we need a person to go talk to this who's kind of a generally friendly face and like just pop him in there. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. He's popped right into the UN. They popped him into no, exactly. interim liberal leader in the Federal House of Commons. Exactly. He's just one of those sort of guys who's just around. He's like a, a convenient, some a respectable enough guy. But there's also always been trouble with the project Cliffs, a Cleveland-based mining company pulled out of the Ring of Fire in 2018, selling its assets to Norant, that Canadian company that discovered it. Norant was then this year bought out by an Australian company called Wylo Metals. W-Y-L-O-O, which, uh, I mean, it's a wonderful name. Hopefully that's also the name of a particular marsupial, but it may, may not be. Lots of things in Australia have two O's in them like that. So all of these companies along the way flattered and lobbied Queen's Park. Navigator is actually lobbying for Wylo right now. Wylo. Wylo. <laughs> But it's really like just the colossal amount of infrastructure that's going to be needed to actually get minerals out of the ground in the middle of northern Ontario, like bog, basically, is is just like a stumbling back, no matter how much governments say they want to do it. Considering that the Eggington LRT, for example, doesn't, as far as I know, even have a set opening date anymore, Perhaps it's less surprising that a 500-kilometer all-weather road to the north is maybe eluding this government. Yeah. Yeah. Wailu does seem committed to getting this to actually happen, but those other companies before it did too. The latest development that, to me, seems like it does have a possibility of shaking up the stakes is the Joe Biden administration in the White House. The U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, this is like much talked about legislation that is basically the White House for the first time agreeing to massive subsidies for clean energy and and electric vehicles. It actually includes a fund that will grant money to Canadian companies that mine critical minerals. 
The Wall Street Journal reported in September that the U.S. military, huge uh, consumer of nickel. Mm -hmm. And it's industrial complex. I was almost going to say that, but I was like, I should be more specific. Military and its associated industrial complex, yes. Yes. (laughs) It's encouraging Wailu to tap into that... Inflation Reduction Act money uh, and use it to get the ring of fire moving along, both for geopolitical reasons, the we hate China, we are losing to China and are mad about it uh, reasons. And because, yeah, they want more nickel for their fighter jets and their boats and their missiles. So we could potentially be heading into a situation where the U.S. military is leaning on Queens Park to get this road built, which could certainly ramp up opposition and kind of change the optics of the Ring of Fire project in a lot of ways. I mean, when it was it was the governor of Michigan complained about the convoy or whatever protesters closing the border there that Doug Ford finally got, got off his ass to recognize it as a crisis because it was embarrassing him in the eyes of the Americans. Yeah, exactly. I was thinking about that. And the White House leaked to the CBC that they would be willing to send Homeland Security to Windsor. And that is when Doug Ford (laughs) got that that convoy protest uh, shuttered down. But I mean, I don't know. I mean, governments everywhere say they're going to do a lot of shit that never gets done. So it is possible the U.S. military decides to... Um, pressure Doug Ford into to developing the Ring of Fire, but it's also possible that Joe Biden loses the election next year and we're not. These are the last things we're freaking talking about. In a documentary I was watching last night called The Whole Story, H-O-L-E. Yeah. <laughs> they were talking about that, that nickel mine in Sudbury. There was concern for a while. I I probably during world one of the world wars <laughs> that the US so the JP Morgan's company Inco owned that mine so it was already owned by an American and used to arm Americans and oddly Germans in World War 1 so uh, Canadian soldiers mm. that fought at Vimy Ridge were being uh missiled with weapons made with nickel from Sudbury. That made people mad at the time. Um, But there was concern the U.S. was going to invade Sudbury via Minnesota to try to take over the mine. Like that was like a potential concern at one point. Maybe they were just pointing at it and shouting mine and because they were referring to it as a mine and people mistook. (laughs) Sorry, it's the worst joke. (laughs) So... As Nick put it, uh, as a prospector, my main goal ought to be to exploit Ontario's minerals to the best of my ability. But I do, I do wonder about, you know, what are the, the green energy merits of mining mostly pristine, intact parts of the natural environment in the province's north? Yeah, I mean, I don't know how to put a number on it when it comes to carbon dioxide emissions, but it's it's really the inherent contradiction within mm. the current battery boom and electrification boom. The peat bog, the ring of fire deposits are located in, is a very important carbon sink. And I mean, environmentalists that know a lot more about this than me, I mean, say that ripping it up will just be horrible for the type of climate related things we should be doing to trap carbon dioxide and not release lots more of it from this sink or bog full of it. Plus, there's like wildlife and First Nations people very much living there. And there's like no way that mining and road building won't be like so disruptive to that. As I said, it's only been like three years since governments like since Doug Ford or the White House 
have really gotten anywhere close to having a political consensus on green energy. And that's really only when car manufacturing began to hinge on a pivot to electric vehicles. So, like, the Ontario government is bought in no matter what. Like, they are investing in EV plants, like the Volkswagen one, billions of dollars. But, I mean, the problem with EVs is that you need a lot of electricity now to charge them all Mm -hmm. up all the time. And there's a lot of evidence that Ontario is going to be very short. We We do not have enough electricity generation to do that. So the province is trying to expand natural gas production (laughs) to basically build the EV plants. It's the most thing. (laughs) thing. It's it's, it's just it just it just seems right that the best hope to get off of emissions spewing vehicles would be things that themselves run clean, but involve like several times as much environmental destruction to actually harness that energy in the first place. Well, and it is, I think it honestly is the like economic beacon aspect of it too. It's like we just need a new industry (laughs) to like make us be forward looking and think of where to invest and like what's exciting. And like, then that's just what electrification has become. And that's why we're talking about critical minerals in the first place. Like it's you know, an attempt to like kind of push things forward while still just doing them the exact same, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I'm starting to wonder if maybe Elon Musk doesn't actually have the answers. <laughs> so the PCs have done a lot, like done a whole bunch of stuff and are really, really behind electric vehicle production and although not electric vehicle chargers, there's like none of those really in Ontario. They are ready to spend money on the Ring of Fire. They passed a bill, Bill 71, in the spring that will speed up the mining permitting process as Jonathan saw. We learned today Mm. it was really long and hard. Um, Well, it's a prospecting purpose. Yeah, that wasn't quite the permitting process. I mean, we could go through the permitting process. Well, permitting (laughs) process is a few steps down the road. Yeah, I think we'll like need a drill. Um, and it also gives the mining minister way more powers over exploration and mining reclamation orders. That's so basically kind of transferring it from the public service. And like there was like a directorate of reclamation or of exploration before. And instead, it's all just going to that the minister of mining is going to get all of that power. But I guess the point I'm trying to get to is no matter how much the government kind of wants this to happen, like there's also only so much they can do. Like there has to be private capital involved. And I'm no expert in this. You're not? No. (laughs) But I've spoken spoken to people in the mining industry and done some research. And there was a big commodities super cycle that like popped uh, in 2012. And since then, I guess investment banks and hedge funds don't really want to invest in mining in Canada anymore. So Mm. I think that's kind of been like a drag on all of it because commodities like the prices of lithium Mm. and cobalt and stuff go up and down and people, certain people, maybe everybody wants a steady return on their investment. and They they don't want to pump money into a mine that's going to take 10 years to start producing stuff. So even, Jono, like if you're Mm -hmm. prospecting, you know, your new mining claim finds the best damn ore deposit Ontario's ever seen, the likelihood of it getting turned into a profitable mine, albeit a very small one on that marina, it's still like pretty slim. 
depends on being that profitable mine. I mean, it cost me, what, $40 to become prospector and $50 to register the claim. Well, I mean, me slash Canada land. And so, I mean, if I go up there with like a pickaxe and grab a chunk of it, I might have a chunk of raw something. That could be $100 worth, probably not, right? I'd probably have the best bet at getting a return on investment by just picking up any literal like nickel coins off the ground. And, and perhaps if I them. <laughs> uh, no, because I don't even think they're made out of nickel. But if you get like a hundred if you get enough of those, they'd probably make back the fifty dollars if someone's like dumped a pile of nickels there. Jono just roaming the streets looking for, for change. nickels. <laughs> I'm prospecting. I mean that I, in a way. In a way, maybe people have also left some empty bottles I can take back to the local beer store. I could make a profit if I can make $50 and one cent. But I don't think that's how the economics of mining actually works. But maybe it should. Micromining. I don't know. <laughs> Sustainable micromining. Yeah. So as Nick mentioned, Toronto and the TSX are massive hubs for mining companies. Something like 75% of all global mining companies are headquartered here. And our laws uh, in Canada are very favorable to that industry. But most of that mining actually happens in other countries. So I think people are more keen to invest in like mining in Burkina Faso or... I think Archie and the Commons team have a whole season that'll tell you all about this. Yeah, absolutely. Listen to Commons mining season. So like somehow they're, they're both raising and lowering the stakes. I mean, the fact that I can just become a prospector in Canada land, which is never before been classified or characterized by anyone so far as I know as a junior mining company can stake a claim on a parcel in Kenora, Ontario. The bar to entry has certainly been lowered and it'd be fun to go up there and explore for minerals. I don't realistically expect that we will see much of a return on investment in that. But if we were to do that at scale, I mean, this is one cell we bought. If we were to, I, I, I don't know, it's, it's one of those things you can easily imagine people um, hawking online as a way to make money. Because I imagine the handful of, like as in anything, I imagine the handful of people who do it well or who can who do well and can resell it can actually make a whole lot of money simply by sitting on their computer and clicking. Yeah, it's a weird sector because like on one hand, obviously there are massive mines in Canada and there have been and there are some of them have had a rough history of like occupational deaths and ongoing environmental disasters like resulting from abandoned mines and communities both like indigenous and non-indigenous being expropriated, like the land being expropriated out from under people for development. It's a very intense sector and can make a flipping fortune if you do it right, but there's like so many ways that you don't. But yet there's still all of these like not just like Internet prospectors like us, like real prospector dudes that go out into the woods from like the thaw into the fall and like dig around on their plots and uh, do that line cutting stuff and and drill for samples and then try to package them up as like a prospectus and try to sell the use that to sell their plot to larger companies. Mm -hmm. And that's what the prospecting industry really is. And it's all like built on a hope and a dream. Nobody ever talks about any of this. It's a, it's a real place. These are real things. Mm -hmm. These are, in many cases, ancestral lands and or treaty lands. And while this online mining claim system specifically, you know, exempts reserves, you cannot stake a claim on a reserve. That isn't necessarily the case for treaty lands or ancestral lands. And if it were, I think I suspect there wouldn't be much of a mining industry. 
Well, the one other thing I learned is that in the, there's the Mines Act of 1906. And this was like kind of the first law in Canada that really like made up the system that like crowned what's underneath crown land <laughs> uh, or underneath all of the land probably at that point is like up for grabs. And it that just it's so interesting because it runs so counter to like our Western liberalism's like obsession with like property rights, right? Like property rights are s- such a thing. Nothing's more than a thing than property rights. But like the one thing that's also allowed that like gets around that is digging underneath stuff. It's kind of hard to wrap your head around. It, it, it's easy to lose perspective. So we got in touch with Saul Mamakwa, who's a deputy leader of the Ontario NDP, the MPP for Kuetanu, the party's critic for Indigenous and Treaty Relations and Northern Development, and a member of the Kingfisher Lake First Nation. You know, like I think that I first found out about it when Grassy Narrows came here and all of a sudden they found out, like during COVID, that all of a sudden there's these claims that are happening in their traditional territories, which they were not aware of. Uh, you know, it's in the hundreds. Another community that was concerned about that was Muskrat Dam. They showed me a letter that they had sent a letter to Platniks that right beside their First Nation that they had staked their claims. I know Muskrat Dam will not stand for that. And I know who Platnix is. They're a company that got removed from the traditional territories of Kitchener-Mexipinanog back in the early 2000s. There's six members of the KI6, the chief and council, and they got thrown in jail for, I don't know how many days, 60, 70 days. Obviously, the need for these minerals in our territories, like even at the federal level, the provincial level, like they all talk about these investments for electric vehicles and all that, but nobody is doing the real work that needs to happen. And I think that the more colonial the industry is, the more oppressive the governments are, whether it's the provincial or the federal government, the stronger we become as nations. I mean, industry and uh, governments try to throw money to these First Nations. A lot of people do not understand what the land means to people like me, to people like Niskandaga, to people in Grassy Narrow, the people in and other First Nations. Uh, as an example, we grew up on the land. That's where you get the language from. You get the, the identity from the land. You get the, the teachings from the land. All these principles that we have as First Nations come from the land. And without the land, who are we? There seems to be a lot of announcements in the North. There seems to be a lot of visibility of these ministers in the North. They're working with municipalities. They're working with Northern First Nations and preparing for any type of investments that they want to do with these First Nations or municipalities. It's almost like putting the, the cart before the horse without really doing the legwork that needs to happen with with free prior informed consent processes. We are dealing with a lot <clears throat> a lot of issues when in the north right now and they want to come in and mine these minerals without creating a good foundation on how we work together. What about the healing centers? What about the hospitals? What about the high schools in the north? What about the housing that's needed? We need to build a foundation of having relationships, and right now it's not happening. That's the most colonial way, as if you're just going to access our lands and expect us all of a sudden to have prosperity. And I think they don't even care about that because the province of Ontario will not invest anything on reserve. The suicide crisis, the mental health crisis, the opioid crisis, the housing crisis that's happening. And talking to Niskandaga members, the leadership, you know, I always hear about that they haven't 
given their free prior informed consent on you know the work that needs to happen in the ring of fire you know it's a most colonial way that you can do things without talking to first nations when we talk about free prior informed consent free is like first nations should not be spending any resources when they're provided the information and then prior is to me is like it has to happen before any work begins informed is to make sure that they understand in a way we understand the language maybe it's our own language not the technical language that's informed we need that consent means they can say yes or no to the project and i think that's very clear when we say free prior informed consent and right now we some of the first nations don't even know exactly what is happening that's a responsibility of the province they cannot just transfer that responsibility of engaging the people that are on the land so do they sometimes d- delegate the consultation process to a, a neighboring first nation is that what you're saying that's what i'm kind of hearing as well first nations are doing the engagement they hire first nations people to do that and then that, that creates people that are pro development and people that want answers for it it's not happening in a way that it should happen like i sense a little bit of concern from the some of the companies because of the approach that this government was taking because what what's going to happen is i think that, that even though they want to open up mines faster it hinders the mining companies the industry it will slow down the process because you cannot just force yourself on the lands of the people that live in those territories some companies are really good at that on making sure that there's free prior informed consent and when the government <laughs> continues to be very colonial dividing conquer approaches it slows down projects the way they talk in public about it they believe that it's going to happen but i i'm starting to believe that it's just in the election platform like i've heard the the, the talk about that he's going to jump on his bulldozer himself but i think uh, we welcome that because what's going to happen is he's going to go into a muskeg and it's just going to sink we know these territories we know these lands they haven't done their work they work with some first nations yes you know like i'm not against that but i think you have to talk to all the nations or the first nations that are affected and i see that in other areas not just uh, ring of fire but there's other mines that are going up and the way this government is kind of uh, trying to divide people trying to move along it's it's not working again the free prior informed consent is not being played right and not only that like when you only work with some first nations that's from a colonial playbook they uh, do not uh, respect first nations in that way they do not respect and honor the ways of life of our people this is not the 1950s it's like it's 2023 i think my takeaway from all this is that we're just still sitting in the bog of history canada and ontario were built on natural resource extraction and european settlers bullying their way into taking it all for themselves and that's still what's going on engineering advances made during the california gold rush are credited with getting the united states on the track to become the powerhouse of innovation it became but that innovative streak included becoming the first country like i said to use nickel in its military equipment leading to both us imperial domination 
and the J.P. Morgan-financed nickel boom in Sudbury. Now the U.S. military is hungry for the Ring of Fire and a Cold War with China, and little old Ontario is happily once again kind of tagging along for the ride. Mining still has the gold rush hype mentality, and like the post-World War II technological age, we are all still banking on technological advances like EVs to solve all our problems. And we're still carrying on as though our interests, who whoever our is, are the only ones that matter, as though all of this isn't built atop pyramids of exploitation anyway, paving lands that belong to sovereign nations long before we had any ostensible stake in them. There's a post-industrial sheen to our lives and to our cities now, but it, yeah, it's all just sitting on the back of a cobalt mine. Could you just give me the coordinates of that mine? That was Bag the Duck, a show about peat bogs. I'm Jonathan Goldsby. You can find me on Blue Sky and also at Looking for Minerals in Kenora, Ontario, though not on the land because the day after recording, a very nice person at the ministry gave me a call to tell me that the above-ground portion of the cell had actually been listed in error, but that I was still welcome to the claim so long as we're good with just the underwater part. I'm Alison Smith, and you can find me on Twitter at, at Queen's Park Today. Our producer is Katie Lohr, Annette Ajofo is our managing editor, Karen Pugliese is our editor-in-chief, and our theme music is by Nathan Burley. Our podcast is listener-supported. Go to CanadaLand.com slash join to help us keep this podcast going. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.